The scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Good morning, everybody. All right, glad to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Joseph Colston. Um, work with the students here, and um, I'm thrilled to be here this morning and ready to, to dig into this passage a little bit. Uh, before I get started, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he is. Um, Father, all that we can learn about you from your word. Um, thank you for this opportunity to stand up here this morning, Father, and um, God, just share what you are teaching me. Um, Father, as we prepare to get started this morning, I ask that you would pour your grace out upon us. Father, I pray that um, you would guard my words this morning. Father, that I would not portray Jesus in a light that is unworthy of him being seen in, Father, but that he would be honored and glorified and exalted as we look at um, ways in which we can try to see the full totality of who Jesus is that Scripture teaches us. Open our hearts and our minds this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, um, this morning we're talking out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple of aspects of Jesus um, that may uh, may be a little less familiar to us than um, than what we we normally look at Jesus in light of. And here at Three Rivers, we do a really good job of making sure that in everything we teach, that Jesus is exalted as he should be. Um, he's King Jesus, proclaiming him as the scriptures do is the most important task um, for anyone who's going to be teaching uh, from the Bible. The scripture has a lot to say about who Jesus is, and it's important for us as followers of him uh, to learn as much as we possibly can about Jesus. There are a lot of uh, amazing passages in scripture that proclaim the awesome nature of Jesus. One of my favorites is Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20. Um, I'm going to read what Paul wrote there about Jesus. Uh, he says that he's the, in, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, there in Colossians 1, Paul does a really amazing job of painting a picture of the otherness of Jesus, that which is outside of us, that which is foreign to us as human beings. Um, Jesus is God. He is the creator and sustainer of all life, and he's beyond anything that we can imagine. Now, over the last few weeks, um, I've been studying through Hebrews in my devotional time. And as Mitch asked me to preach, um, I began to look particularly for a passage to preach on. And as I studied, chapter 2 of Hebrews really really stood out to me. Um, particularly verses 10 through 18. Uh, and I know today we're just looking at a piece of that. Um, but chapter 2 reminded me of an aspect of Jesus that that I know about, but I often fail to remember. Uh, and this aspect, I believe, is just as important for us to have in our view of Jesus as the lofty transition, transcendent picture that Colossians 1 paints of who Jesus is. And as I narrowed in on these verses, you know, 10 through 18, I was, I was overwhelmed with how much there is to cover here. And since I am a mere Padawan in the ways of exegesis, um, I had to cut that down. Um, so that's why we're going to look just at verses 14 through 18. Um, I would really encourage you guys, go home and study this chapter. It's, it's amazing. Um, get you a good commentary. There are, there's countless resources available for free on the Internet um, that can help you be a great student of the Word. Um, you know, just always kind of vet everything you're reading before you put any stock in it, but... There's a lot of resources out there that can help us study these scriptures and learn more about who Jesus is. Um, but verses 14 through 18 in particular paint a, an amazing picture, not of the transcendent, lofty Jesus who is ruling and reigning the nations, but of the intimate and close Jesus, the, the, the eminent one who cares for and guards us. The thing we have to remember as followers of Jesus is that as we study Scripture, both of those views are right. And we cannot take them individually. Okay? Both of those views have to be taken together because without it, we don't have a complete view of who Jesus is. Um, so we have to view Him both simultaneously as the infinite sovereign King that is other and foreign to us and the incarnate God who's become one of us and experienced all of our afflictions and all of our sufferings. If we view him as any less than all of that, we're not seeing Jesus for who he is. Um, now this passage, uh, I, I guess today we're going to look more at just really breaking down these verses and, into what the author of Hebrews here is saying. Um, he, he begins this, this paragraph um, with, I, I think, what has to be a little bit of prerequisite work for what is coming. Um, we have to start with the condition of mankind before we can understand what it means for Jesus to come as man. If we look back at verse 14, um, the author starts with a very brief phrase about the condition of humanity. Um, but there's a lot here to unpack that um, we may miss over if we just read this and glance at it. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Um, so he starts here discussing the human condition. And, and just briefly looking at that, 
um, one could make the conclusion that the children um, are share in a common humanity, they common body, flesh and blood. Um, but when you really start to dig into what is being said here, it starts to to explain in more detail just what Jesus left and stepped into um, to become our brother and our high priest. The the phrase that the author of Hebrews uses here, flesh and blood, um, it's not a very common phrase. In fact, the Greek structure, um, I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I do try to use the resources available to me um, to, to help me understand uh, what a, a passage may really be talking about. This this exact structure only appears four other times in the New Testament. So it's five times total that we see what is translated out as flesh and blood. And in each of those instances, um, the context in which flesh and blood is being referred to is referring to the limitations of humanity. Not the literal flesh and the literal blood that flows through all of our veins, but the limitations, the inability on our part to discern the things of God and to live righteously. It's, it's talking about the human inability to do what is necessary to be right and just. So what is the condition of humanity? Humanity in general, just from us observing, um, we have physical and spiritual limitations. Um, Every one of us has limited abilities. Um, contrary to how all this may appear, I cannot run a four-second 40. Cannot be done for me. Some people may be able to do that, but that is a physical limitation that I have. I'm not a fast-moving individual. Um, I prefer to be sedentary. <laughs> um, but we have these limited abilities. Like we, we, we don't have all the power necessary to accomplish anything in the physical realm that we want to. Um, we also are subject to sickness, whether it's the common flu or it's, you know, the plague in the Middle Ages. Like there are there are things that make our bodies sick and cease to function the way they're supposed to. And we're also, as humans, subject to death. Um, at some point, all of our bodies will quit working completely and we will cease to be here in this realm. And uh, hopefully everybody here will go be with Jesus. That would be pretty awesome. Um, but humanity in general also has spiritual limitations. Um, scripture teaches us that, you know, mankind is, is conceived in sin. Um, um, there are a lot of, of passages, uh, particularly in, in Paul's letters, that discuss humanity being, uh, being blind, uh, unable to see Jesus for who he is, um, 2 Corinthians talks about the God of this age has blinded men's eyes to the glory of, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So humanity in itself is blind to the identity of God. We are enslaved to sin. We are born in bondage. Um, and without Christ, we're hopelessly lost. So that's, that's the condition of humanity in general. Um, but what the author of Hebrews here is talking about is he's talking about the children. Now, this is a... a term that he uses a couple of times here in chapter 2 um, and he's, he uses it in the context of referencing some Old Testament passages but it's referring to those whom God 
is redeeming through Jesus for himself. Uh, now, we as those in Christ are subject to all the same physical limitations. Um, but we're also, the spiritual limitations are a little bit different. Like, for those of us in Christ, we've been awakened to who Jesus is. Um, you know, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have hope. We're not lost. Um, but we do still come under spiritual assault a lot of times. And that can take the form of, of temptation to sin, persecution for being identified with Christ. Um, a, lot, a lot of different ways. So as we, as we dive into what it means for Jesus to be brother and priest, this is what he's stepping into. We've got the infinite, sovereign, eternal God taking on the form of, of weakness um, in order that he could, could be a faithful priest for us. Um, in verse 14, uh, the author of Hebrews says that he, speaking of Christ, himself likewise partook of the same things. Um, it may not seem like it on the surface, but the author of Hebrews here is making a huge point about the identity of Jesus. Um, as, as Hebrews was written in the, you know, the late first century, um, a lot of heresy about who Jesus was was already coming about. Um, and sadly, much of this heresy is still present today. So our understanding of, of the total picture of who Jesus is is directly applicable to us here and now in terms of defining who Jesus is. Um, there was a, uh, a first century heresy called docetism that was arising about the time that Hebrews was written. Um, there are many places in the New Testament where there are references to it, particularly in John and Paul's letters. Um, docetism was a pre- precursor to uh, the Gnostic heresy that was uh, realized in the second century. It, it taught that Jesus was purely a spiritual being, that he did not have a physical body, and all the experiences and sufferings of Christ, including the crucifixion, were just mere appearances. And it also vehemently denied the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, because if he was spirit and the crucifixion didn't happen, there was no need for him to be resurrected. So this is the context in which the author of Hebrews is writing um, so to understand the, the limitations of humanity and for him saying that Jesus partook of the same things is, is a, it's an, a full frontal assault on this heresy of saying that Jesus was not flesh and blood. Um, because if Jesus only had these experiences as mere appearances, then he can't be our high priest. He cannot... Um, sympathize with us. This passage also, although it doesn't, it doesn't bring in one of those lofty passages um, full of rich Christology um, to define who Jesus is in terms of the the divine ruling king. Um, it also serves um, when taken with what the author begins with in chapter 1 of Hebrews uh, as a way to combat the marginalization of Jesus as merely a man. 
um, as merely a prophet or merely a good moral teacher. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 says this, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is how the author of Hebrews begins his letter. So for us to look at verse 14 and say that, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The author here is describing the, the unification of the eternal God with the frail, transitory human nature um, to become something that we needed him to be. Um, so the son of chapter 1 is the same person here being discussed in chapter 2. So it eliminates the possibility of Jesus being denied the fact that he ever physically existed, and it also denies the marginalization of Jesus. He must be embraced as the Scriptures present him. God become man. That's the total picture of Jesus. Um, to separate one from the other is, is just a, a lacking view. <clears throat> so Jesus became fully human, and he shared the human experience partaking in the same things that the children of verse 14 did. So what are some of the things that, that Jesus shared with us? Um, he shared the same physical limitations. Jesus became hungry. Okay, We have several, several stories in the, New Te- in the Gospels about Jesus eating with his disciples. Jesus became thirsty. He sat at the well with a Samaritan woman and asked her for a drink. Jesus became tired. Um, Matthew chapter 8. The, uh, the disciples are on the boat on the sea. The storm comes up. And Jesus is in the belly of the, of the ship sleeping. So Jesus has the same, or had in his um, human nature, the same physical limitations that we have. Jesus also experienced um, extreme spiritual struggle. During his fast in the wilderness, um, he was tempted to embrace power and riches in exchange for bowing to Satan and idolatry. Um, we often are faced with the same temptation to make something else God that is not worthy of our worship um, in exchange for comfort or security or wealth. Before his crucifixion, when Jesus was in the garden, um, he's, he's facing the cross, he knows what's coming, and his human nature is, is tempted to circumvent the suffering and try to find another way. Um, and as he prays, it says that, that he, he's so grieved that he's literally sweating blood. I don't, I don't know how stressful you have to be to do that, but that's, that's some extreme mental anguish and suffering right there. Um, but in all these things, Jesus was still obedient to the will of the Father. Um, which is one of the coolest things that, that I see. Um, so 
He shared the same physical limitations. He experienced spiritual struggle um, in the same way, and, and I would even say in a more intense way than we um, experience spiritual struggle. And Jesus also tasted death. Um, and death is an experience that we all share. Um, a lot of us get uncomfortable talking about it, don't really want to think about it. Um, but it's something that we will all eventually face. Um, and Jesus had family, Jesus had friends that he lost to death. Um, you think about the story of Lazarus. Um, this was a man that Jesus was um, good friends with. Um, Bible tells us that he loved Lazarus. And Lazarus died. And when Jesus was told that Lazarus has died, um, the scriptures say that he wept. Um, he was grieved at the loss of his friend. So Jesus experienced death in losing those he was close to. Um, but he also tasted death, feeling its sting on the cross. Um, it, it was not just a mere um, experience of coming close to death and seeing those around him die. He, he physically tasted it himself. So Jesus has fully shared the human experience and has um, partook of the same things. And as I look here at verse 14 and 15, it, it appears that there are two effects of Jesus sharing in the flesh and blood. Um, the first one is that in death he destroyed the one who has the power of death. If we look at verse 14, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. Um, it also tells us the one who has the power of death is referring to Satan. Now there's a, a couple of things we need to clear up here. Um, this is obviously not talking about Jesus physically destroying or annihilating Satan. Because um, we know that he is still around and still tries to wreak havoc um, in, this, in this universe. Um, but what this word uh, really means in terms of destroy is to render inoperative or make of no effect. So... In saying that the one who has the power of death has been destroyed, he's not been annihilated, he's been disarmed. Okay? Um, and what is the power of death? Um, the author of Hebrews says that Satan has this. Um, and it's not an idea that the power of death is something that Satan has in absolute control. Um, that would be a dualistic view and would pit Satan as an equal opposite force. Uh, with God, and that is not the case. Um, his power over death is not absolute. Scripture teaches us that the final authority of death is in God's hands alone. Um, Matthew 10:28, Jesus tells us not to fear the one who can destroy the body, but not destroy the soul, but to fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. That's God, and He speaks of Himself in Revelation chapter one saying that, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, God is the one who has the ultimate final authority uh, over death. And so Satan, in, the, in terms of death, can only do that which God permits. Um, you know, last time I preached, we looked at the story of Job a little bit. Um, and taken back there again, um, God allowed Satan to destroy up to the point of not taking Job's life. Um, so God is ultimately in sovereign control over all of this. So if the power of death ultimately lies, lies with God, then what is this phrase talking about? Um, 
Satan is the author of sin. Um, Jesus uh, says that Satan is the, the author of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer. Um, he is the one who in the garden introduced sin into humanity. And as a result, it produced death. Jesus told Adam and Eve that... I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, Jesus, that, that works. <laughs> sorry. Jesus told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree, that they would die. Um, and Satan introduced the lie that they would not. And as a result, death came. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Sin produces death. So in this sense, with Satan being the one... Um, the driving force behind sin in the world, he brings death. Um, and in that sense, he does exercise power in the realm of death. So Jesus, in tasting death, um, has destroyed that power. Uh, because the one who has lived sinless, who has come and partook of the same things that we do, yet did so in a sinless manner, has paid the price for death, or paid the price for sin in his death, and has destroyed that power for sin to destroy us, um, which is really cool. And the other thing we do, we do see here, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus um, liberated those who through fear of death were subject to this. Um, the ones being delivered here, um, keep in mind, we are not talking about the entirety of the human race, but those for whom Jesus died. Um, the children of verse 14, um, the children of verse 13, the, the many sons that are going to be brought to glory from verse 10. Um, this is speaking of those who Jesus' death purchased. Um, we have been taken out of bondage to sin and slavery. Um, the fear of death is no longer there for us. Um, as I was studying for this, I read a, a cool commentary that Mitch let me borrow. Um, a guy named F.F. F. Bruce um, had a really great quote on this verse. It says this, The fear of death is a most potent fear. Through fear of death, many will consent to do things that nothing else could compel them to do. For the majority, the fear of death can be a tyrannous instrument of coercion. And death is indeed the king of terrors to those who recognize in it the penalty of sin. But by the death of their sanctifier... Christ's brothers and sisters are sanctified. His death has transformed the meaning of death for them. To them, his death means not judgment but blessing, not bondage but liberation. And their own death, when it comes, takes its character from his death. So Jesus, um, in partaking of the same things that, that we are subject to, has destroyed the power of sin that is death, and he's... Um, provided freedom to those who were in bondage. And there are a couple of other things that um, as we look at Jesus as, as brother who shared in our, our condition and as priest who um, goes between us and God on our behalf that we, we need to look at. Um, the first thing is that through this suffering that Jesus experienced, verses 16 and 17, that he's able to mediate on our behalf. Verse 16 says, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Um, so Jesus helps those who are the offspring of Abraham. Uh, an interesting translation point here, the word that is translated helps has a couple of different ways it can be translated. 
Um, and an alternate interpretation of this word um, is literally means to um, catch hold of or lay hands upon or to grasp, um, which is kind of cool when you when you think about um, what's being said here. It's it's Jesus is is grasping or taking hold of the children or offspring of Abraham. And the offspring of Abraham here is referencing, again, the spiritual seed of Abraham and not, not necessarily the physical seed. Um, Romans 9 says that all those who are in the lineage of Abraham are not necessarily of Abraham. It's, this is referring to those who have the spiritual lineage of Abraham's faith. So, <clears throat> moving on to verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, and this is, this is where it's, it's really kind of cool to start looking at this fraternal bond that we share with Jesus. Um, in order for him to be the help for the offspring of Abraham, he had to become one of us. Um, he had to be made like his brothers, which is what... Verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Um, Romans 8:29 tells us that Jesus became the firstborn among many brothers. Um, we are heirs of God, join heirs with Jesus. Um, it's a really cool truth that we have a God who not only is transcendent and lofty and powerful and holy, um, but he is also uh, close and knows what we go through. He, he is one of us. Um, while at the same time being completely other um, from us. But he, it says he became like us in every respect. Um, Warren Wiersbe says that while he was here on earth, Jesus was made like his brothers and that he experienced the sinless infirmities of human nature. He knew what it was to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experience of weariness, hunger, and thirst. He knew what it was to be despised and rejected, to be lied about and falsely accused. He experienced physical suffering and death. And the scripture tells us that, that he did this. He became one of us so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. Um, we go back to the establishment of the priesthood um, back in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews talks a lot about the priesthood, um, about the temple service. Um, you get this really cool understanding that um, everything that was set up in the Old Testament in terms of the way in which uh, men approached God was a, a dim reflection of what the, the true setup was in heaven. And that's, that's how it was designed to be, was to point everything to the coming high priest. And um, so the high priest was someone of the... Descent, uh, lineage of Aaron, um, that was one of the requirements of the, the high priest in terms of the, the earthly temple service. And they obviously had to be one of the people. It could not be a proselyte. It could not be someone who was uh, not a Hebrew or a Jew um, who came into the, the, the faith of Abraham. Uh, it had to be someone who was one of the brothers. So the high priest had to be one of the people. And what the high priest's work was, throughout the year he made sacrifices and, and um, assisted in the, in the work and everyday function of, of the temple. But once a year, the high priest would enter into the, the holy place. 
And he would carry with him sacrifice to atone for his sins and the sin of the people. So as you know, chapter 1 of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, he made this sacrifice once and for all. Because he was sinless, he was able to make the payment forever. There was no more sacrifice needed. Uh, and he was able to atone for the sins of all his people. As he entered the holy place, um, he now mediates between us and God so that we now stand faultless. He's able to make propitiation for our sins, which is really, really cool. He's able to mediate on our behalf. Um, So by becoming one of us, he fulfilled the obligation required of him to become our high priest. Um, He had to be one of us to be our priest, which is awesome. Um, And then the last thing um, that we want to look at this morning is that through his suffering while he was tempted... um, He's able to sustain us in temptation. Um, for any of you who have had the experience of being really enslaved to a particular sin or um, almost an addiction or something like that, uh, any of you have had that experience, um, when you come to know Christ, your heart's awake and your soul's regenerated and you see that that thing for what it is. It's evil. It's wicked. It, it divides us from God. And before we, uh, before we come to know Christ, that's not something that really bothers our conscience that much. We're enslaved to sin. All we see is sin. Um, we pursue those things. Um, but once we are awakened, um, once we become one of the children or a brother of, or sister of Christ, um, that new heart in us that has God's law written on it begins to produce within us an anguish, um, uh, a turmoil when we're faced with temptation to do those same things. Um, when you're faced with the temptation to sin and you seek to fight sin, it at times, it can literally be mental suffering that you, you go through in terms of trying to, um, trying to obey what God's will is in that situation. Um, our flesh is weak, it's corrupted, and it desires to, um, to give in to those things. So Jesus himself um, actually has shared in this suffering when he was tempted, which is what verse 18 tells us. Um, we go back during during the fast. You know, Jesus was walking in the wilderness. He hadn't eaten, and Satan offers to turn bread into or stones into bread. Um, his his flesh, no doubt, was hungry. Um, if he if he was fully fully human, which Scripture says he is, um, he's probably pretty hungry. And the thought of bread probably sounded pretty amazing at that point. Um, however. Although his body um, was pushing his mind to give in to that temptation, he resisted and was obedient to the will of God. Um, also in the garden, his, his body was, was telling him he did not, not want to face the suffering that was coming on the cross. He did not want to face the um, torment that his physical body was going to feel. But yet again, in the face of that temptation, he submitted to the will of God rather than listening to his flesh. Um, 
so in all those things, Jesus remained without sin, even in the face of extreme mental torment and anguish um, because of the temptation he faced. So as a result of that, he is able to aid us when we are tempted. Because Jesus has, has walked the human experience as we do every day. He, he, well, he's always known the, the temptation and the struggle. Um, but he is able to be merciful and provide us aid. He comes to the help of those who are being tempted. So that's a promise that we're given here um, to trust in that. Um, there's, there's a lot of joy that can be found in this, um, in understanding that Jesus is not only Lord and Savior, but he is brother and priest. He's someone who encompasses all these things for us. Um, and it's amazing to me that the God of the universe would step down and, and walk in my shoes and um, experience the same things that, that I did in order to make atonement for my sin and point me to him. Um, so he's experienced the frailty and suffering that, that is our human life and tasted death so that we would no longer fear death and we would look to him as our reward. So the picture that we see here of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18, um, as brother and high priest, is one that we have to remember to incorporate into our understanding of who Jesus is. Um, while we, we cannot ever forget uh, or neglect the picture of Jesus as our, our exalted reigning king, we have to at the same time not forget that he is also a brother and a priest, and he's merciful and close and near. Um, so for us, I guess the, the biggest thing to take away from this is we need to, as followers of Jesus, search the Scriptures relentlessly trying to learn who he is. Because um, there's so much about him that I think we could spend our whole lives and never exhaust the totality of who he is. Um, and even even in just what he's given of a, us of him in the word, uh, I don't think we can ever fully understand it. But as followers, if we are are going to say that we identify with Jesus, um, we have to always look to know him more. Um, so that let me let me close this in prayer. Uh, Jesus, thank you for. Um, stepping down out of heaven and becoming a man and tasting the affliction and suffering that we do here on this earth. Father, in order that, that you could be our high priest, so that you could be one of the people, so that you could make atonement for our sins. Father, it's so cool to me to see. Um, Father, I pray that we would be inspired um, by this text to seek to know you more from your word. And Father, not focus on one aspect of who you are, because Father, I don't, I don't want any of us to miss the totality of who you are. Um, Father, thank you again for this time. And Lord, let us not lose sight of Jesus. Amen.